Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, this is David Feingold, the president of Chatham University and your host for the future of higher education. I'm here today with Tom O'Reilly, the president of Pine Manor College, who will talk with us about uh, his professional journey and the recent uh, merger that they conducted with Boston College. Tom, uh, great to be with you. I was hoping you might start by just sharing with us a little bit about your, your background growing up, uh, where you went to school, where you went to college. Well, thank you, David. First of all, thank you for having me. A delight to be here, a delight to see you and to know what we're doing. Um, I think that the work you're trying to accomplish here is so important, and uh, really just thank you for that. Um, well, um, I didn't get too far in life. I was born and raised in Boston, um, <laughs> went to school in Boston. Uh, today, we would say that I was a first-gen, low-income uh, student. Uh, I grew up as one of seven uh, in a big Boston family. Uh, my father had a ninth-grade education. My mother had a 12th-grade education. Uh, they sent me off to public schools. They told me to do my best. Uh, I graduated from what we consider the famous Boston Latin School. Of course, we are the hub of all things, so you know we think of it that way. Uh, it was a place that was founded in 1635, and of course, Harvard was founded a year later so that kids from Latin school would have a place to go, which I ended up going to, and uh, and then ultimately got an MBA at a Boston college. Um, I was uh, That was the story. Uh, very fortunate educationally. That, that, that's great, Tom. And where did you fall in those seven kids? I was in the middle. Uh, we had uh, the youngest. When my father died, um, uh, the youngest was a year old. And uh, my mom had her hands full, and she said, um, most of us had jobs already, but she said, everybody's got to go to work, and everybody's got to help make things come together. And we did. We were very Tom, fortunate. If, if people kid you about not, not traveling too far, then you just point them to Ken Gormley, our, our classmate on the Harvard President's course, because, you know, Ken was born 100 meters from Duquesne, where he's now president. So he literally, <laughs> barely a It's the great thing in life. We can go very far and not go anywhere at all. So, so tell, tell us about the start of your career. I, I know before higher education, you had a career in the business world. And so how did, how did that come about? I did. Well, um, I think the important thing is that we always worked um, before full-time, while we're in school. And those things are important because they help round out our lives and help us to learn how to balance. And they ensure that we understand what others are about so that we can make good decisions as we move, especially into leadership positions. Um, First thing out of college, went to Washington, got a job with a member of Congress, uh, did three years there, absolutely exhilarating, loved it, felt I was doing all the right things. Uh, and then woke up one day and said, I should do something else. Went off to business school for a couple of years, decided that I, I had this vision that um, good managers could move in and out of public and private sector, profit and not-for-profit. And if they were true leaders, they would know how to bring the talents that make 
entities go forward and uh, be successful with them. So that was my vision. Uh, went off to business school, wanted to go to a school of management as opposed to a pure business school because I wanted to make sure that I did have those skills. I had spoken to a lot of business schools. Uh, the folks at Boston College at that time said to me, if you come here, we'll make sure you get what you want. And I was excited about that. And that was at a time when people weren't doing double degrees and they weren't getting joint degrees and things like that. So uh, it, it was fun to have an entity, an organization like BC that was willing to stretch and figure out how to make it work for me. Uh, from there, I went into the banking business, had no idea why banking was good for me. But uh, we uh, pre-internet, we had resume books and I started getting calls by bankers who said that they wanted people who were different than their traditional um, hires, which were finance and accounting majors. I was a marketing uh, major. And what they wanted to do is make sure they had people who, as the world was changing in banking, it was being deregulated, that they had people who could become folks who brought in customers as opposed to customers having to find the banks, which is what used to happen. Uh, and I use that as a segue because I think that uh, a lot of the industries I've been in have had big change and um, higher ed's facing that now. Uh, went from uh, the banking world to electronics. One of my customers called me and asked me if I'd come and take a leadership position within the electronics industry. Uh, we spent a huge amount of time uh, turning that around and making it strong. And ultimately, it got sold to a Berkshire Hathaway uh, subsidiary company. And then I moved into another former customer's uh, employment in the auto parts industry. So, and from there, I went to the presidency of Prime Minister College, and I think that makes total sense. Uh, <laughs> banking, yep. electronics, auto parts, and higher ed. Uh, but what I think was interesting about all of it was that in each case, I was allowed to bring to the table the things that I value, uh, which are, first of all, leading with values, and secondly, being very intentional about the good intentions helping places to identify what they're really good at, what makes them special, and then putting it into play. So often people do one of the two things, but when you pull it all together, that's when you get in a great outcome. And I feel fortunate that people let me do those things. Well, talk, talk to us about that last transition. How did you go from, from auto parts to uh, Pine Manor College? And, and was the decision to transition into higher ed, was that something you had been looking to do more broadly and it happened to be Pine Manor or was it a more specific Pine Manor opportunity? Uh, thanks for asking that. Um, I guess it would be unfair if I didn't tell the rest of the story that in, in my background, I always um, was deeply involved in community groups, uh, community action groups. Um, uh, I served on the Boston School Committee for six years um, I served uh, for 20 plus years on the Catholic Charities Board, the World Peace Foundation, but always community action around education. So many folks knew who I who what I was doing in those not-for-profit areas. And uh, when I was invited uh, to apply for the position at Pine Manor College, it was because folks knew that I was deeply engaged on a vocational side or avocational side uh, in education. Um, I was also lucky to have, um, you, you know, uh, I was a fully engaged uh, spouse and parent. So, you know, I had a partner who was willing to uh, uh, let me do these things as long as I did the work at home. And um, 
we had a great we've had a great relationship that has helped make all of it possible. The Pioneer College experience, in particular, came up. Um, they had had a rough go of things: six presidents in ten years, uh, everyone serving a year and a half or so, uh, twenty years of losses, um, a real you know set of dysfunctional issues. And they knew that I was somebody who was comfortable in the not-for-profit world. And they knew that I was somebody who had a deep interest in education. And in particular, the demographic that Pymana College has been serving. You know, when I, uh, we typically, we would say that our population was 85% students of color, has been 85% students of color, 84% first in their families going to college, 80% Pell Grant low income, 50% multilingual. So it was going to take, I think what the board had learned was that it was going to take someone who both understood the demographic, had a a value appreciation for higher education, and had the sort of, I'll say the practical business skills of what it would take to turn things around. It was clearly a high risk proposition. Um, And that's why I think we were successful in the end, because we recognized up front explained it up front that it was a high-risk proposition to everybody, faculty, staff, students, parents, um, the board, and it was an open discussion on a regular basis. And that always enabled us to go forward with uh, plan A, hey, what we'd like to do, what we want to do, what we believe we'd, we're really good at and it's important to do, and a plan B, what we'll do in case that doesn't work. Uh, but it was the mission, ultimately, that drew me to the situation. I love the fact of who we served, and I love the fact of why we served them. Yeah, I that comes through loud and clear. Now, I, I, I believe it's the case that that in addition to the you know the current engagement with Pi Manor, that you had had a chance to to work with them in the past in your career. Can you say a little bit about how that came about and and sort of what you had picked up from that earlier experience? Yes, um, when I was a banker, uh, the bank as as many banks do often participate in community service of different. Uh, types. And I'd been asked if I would serve on the board of Pine Manor College because they needed someone with a good financial background to help them uh, move forward because they'd been running these losses. And um, I made a commitment that I'd give a year uh, because I didn't really understand the college. At that time, it was um, only serving women. It had a very mixed reputation. Um, and um, the leader uh, Gloria Namerowitz at the time, who was way ahead of her time in an incredibly important way. Um, people didn't understand what she was trying to do. And so I thought I would come and do that. Uh, the issues were significant. Uh, it was going from um, a, a community of students who were uh, largely white, uh, largely well-heeled, and uh, moving into a very diverse community that was increasingly uh, low-income and they were facing the challenges of how do we make this work financially? Um, as other colleges were opening up to women and creating opportunities, uh, women were uh, saying, hey, I have other choices. And um, everyone wasn't used to dealing with race um, as a day-to-day issue. And the community of Pymana College was trying to figure it out. So there was a lot going on. Um, I served that year on the board. I helped them with financial models. Uh, we began the process of thinking about auxiliary revenue streams. And um, and then I said, time for me to go on. And um, that was it. Really had no contact until uh, they asked me to consider the presidency. 
And, and given that, that long gap and the fact that they had been through six presidents in 10 years, you hadn't been a leader in higher ed, that, that would cause a lot of people, you, you described it as high risk, but a lot of people might think there's something deeply dysfunctional here that they, they're <laughs> churning through leaders so quick. So, so how much due diligence did you do? What, what was it that gave you the, the sense that even if it wasn't going to be easy, that, that, that you might be able to turn things around? Um, well, I did do a lot of due diligence and I spoke to a lot of folks. Um, the CFO at Harvard University at the time was a good friend. Um, Tom Hollister uh, sat down with him to walk through things. The uh, dean of the Said School of Business at Oxford, uh, Peter Tofano, an old friend, sat down with him, talked about strategy, talked about financials, the, the practical day-to-day issues, um, the importance of the mission and how strategically would that fit, was the world ready to support it, um, the brand issues, no one knew that that's what we were doing, um, a whole host of things. But as I set them up, if we had time, they seemed surmountable. And I believe that there, were, there was enough in the way of underutilized assets, enough in the way of uh, un, undeveloped brand, enough in the way of unarticulated mission that we could make a difference. And so I thought that, um, fortunately, my spouse thought as well, that it was worth taking uh, as an effort, undertaking as an effort. And um, so we launched forward with it. So we you knew there would be problems. Yeah. And, and, and you, you obviously had gotten a good sense of where the sort of unexploited opportunities were, as well as the challenges. Tell us a little bit about what that, that first year was like. How did you go about, given that, uh, that you know, great churn in leadership that, that had happened in the previous decade, how did you go about sort of building the trust and, and getting people engaged in what, what this new vision could be going for. Yeah. Um, well, within the first or second day of arriving, um, I got a call from the president of New England Commission on Higher Education, uh, Pymata College's accrediting agency. And she said, I would like to meet with you. Yeah. And I said, okay. <laughs> uh, uh, two weeks later, I showed up in her office and she sl- slid a letter across the table to me saying that the college had been put on probation and what was I going to do about it? And we talked a little bit about that. And um, after I told her I was going to put my best effort in, I asked her if she thought that I could do it. Could I get us out of probation? Could I turn it around? And she said, well, I wouldn't be talking to you if I didn't think you could do it. So there were people who thought that the mission of the college was important enough to stake out. And um, the issues were real. The issues were academic accreditation. The issues were financial. The issues were governance. The issues were, um, you know, student performance. Uh, The college had about a a 23% graduation rate at that point. Um, it was, um, I was concerned that the college was taking students money without giving them something in return for that. Um, the college was, uh, became co-ed in 2014. Its first uh, male student was admitted in 2014. Uh, some of the students we were admitting were rolling out as fast as they came in. Uh, I was concerned that despite our good intentions, uh, we were letting students in who uh, had no ability to perform. Uh, 
Uh, I wanted us to recruit and, re and, and graduate college-capable students. Um, and we had not set up the metrics or the formulas or the rubrics for thinking about who they were and what they looked like and how we would know that they were capable. And so there was a whole range of issues. Obviously, we were raising about $280,000 a year in fundraise, total fundraising. Um, alumni were angry. Alumni didn't know what we were doing. Uh, we actually called them alums today because we wanted to make sure that the college, which had called them alumni, of course, the female version of the word, and all of us typically say alumni, male version, we have shifted to alums. And uh, we talk about uh, what we were going to begin to do on that front. Um, an early, a brand issue that was very real was that I was concerned that the college didn't really know who it was or was not really willing to say who it was. Uh, our first magazine came out shortly after I got there. It was about to come out. And in typical fashion, or as had been happening over the last few years, they showed me a magazine cover that didn't show any of our students. And uh, we were fortunate. Uh, we had just had a visit by the former governor of Massachusetts, Deval Patrick, and I'd asked him if he would um, stand for a photo, which we did with all the students who had attended, and it was overwhelmingly attended. And um, I said, this is going to be the cover photo. And the marketing team was aghast. You can't do that. We won't. Our alums will hate it. They won't give us any money. What do you mean? They don't give us any money. Well, <laughs> uh, everybody on this page is black or brown except for you. I said, that's who we are. And that became, when we put that magazine out, we put that cover page on. And right after the magazine went out, our second largest donor, who had given us $50,000, called me up and left a phone message. Tom, I'd like to talk to you about that magazine. Uh-oh. I pick up the phone. I call Betsy, Betsy Moulds, great friend of the college. And I said, Betsy, I hear you want to talk about the magazine. She said, yes, I was shocked by that cover page. I said, Betsy, what shocked you? She said, I didn't know we had so many men at the college already. <laughs> well, the college had become 50-50. But her question wasn't about race. Her question was about gender. And she said, I love it. She said, what can I do? And her donations grew to $500,000 at a whack. So I think that it spoke to me about how we were not confident about our good intentions. We were not being intentional about our good intentions. And we had to begin that process. And so the first thing we did after that was to say, this is who we are. Every publication had to be about students. Every print had to show our students. Everything had to be about students. And we began with that messaging. It's about our students. Ultimately, we changed every job description in the college to begin with the byline that says, the purpose of this position is to grow the graduation rate. And we had a lot of you know, noise about that. It, what does that mean? Do we have to give up on rigor? No, no one told you you had to give up on rigor. What it means is you have to be very intentional about your teaching. And what it means is whether you're a safety officer in the accounting department, that you have to help us figure out how to make it about the graduation rate and make sure that you're changing the policies and the programs and the activities of the college in a way that are user-friendly for our students, 
that are helpful to our students and gets them on the road to graduation. Make sure we're taking the barriers out that so often we don't even know exist because we don't understand who they are. So that's what enabled us to begin to say we can change things. And when we saw that those little things, we were trying to be something different, but we were acting just like a traditional college. And we said, we have to change the way we do that. So, so Tom, one thing we I probably had... sidelined us. Sorry about that. No, no, that was that was wonderful. One thing we had in common was coming in as uh, male presidents just after our institutions had gone uh, all gender. And so you, you mentioned Pine Manor did so in 2014, um, Chatham in 2015. I hadn't realized until you, until you just shared that how quickly you already got to being 50-50 in gender. That's remarkable in the sense that, you know, we know in all of higher ed, women outnumber men, you know, at this stage, 57 to 43%. So so how did Pine Manor go about that co-ed transition? And was it any issue for you being a male in what had been an all-women's institution? Uh, well, I, on, the, on the question of how did we bring students in, we really made sure that our focus was about how we were educating our students and what the environment would be like, what the community was like. And we say these things probably at most colleges, but again, we said we have to be intentional about this. If we say we're a small college with an intimate feel, then guess what? The president has to go out and be part of that recruiting effort. The president has to visit high schools. The president has to go out and make the case for how we truly are an intimate place and that you will be able to meet the president of the college because of our size. So I think that was a one step we made. And when we went out and did that, of course, it, the people that was key for us to communicate this to, given the demographic we served with community action folks, were the folks that um, probably had the closest impact, the most impact on the students we serve in terms of who they listened to and who they were welcoming to. And so as we made that case, I think that we didn't have enough of a brand reputation for people to know we were only a women's college outside of the community we were serving before. So it wasn't a big deal. And um, so that was one piece. Uh, with regard to faculty and staff, clearly men were in a minority except for in groundskeeping and in safety. And, you know, and that was the case. And I think that I had the... Um, do what one has to do in terms of proving oneself. Um, I think fortunately my leadership style uh, is one that seeks to understand first. Um, it asks for input. Um, I think that the community wanted to know uh, were my values right, were my intentions right. And I think they understood that a big part of it, and I did some silly things when I first got here, was building their confidence about what we could do. We had been knocked down. There had been, you know, pay um, issue, pay cuts and layoffs and all sorts of things. And um, I think when folks were confident that my values were right and that um, my intentions were right and that I could even deliver on some of those intentions, that they felt confident too. And that helped a lot. Great. And, and Tom, you mentioned that uh, at, as you were formulating that initial plan that you, you, you knew it was going to be vital to have a plan A and a plan B because of what the college had been through. So can you talk us through, I think you've already touched on a number of elements of plan A in terms of 
being clear who you were, uh, new branding, outreach, but what did plan A look like? Because it wasn't just that you had to do those things, but you inherited, it sounded like a structural deficit that had been going on for decades. And so how did you go about fixing that? And what was the plan B that, that you had in case that didn't? Yeah. Well, if we think of the revenue streams that are critical to call any college, um, retention was hurting us because with huge turnover um, and we weren't growing the, the enrollment. And so not only was growing the graduation rate an important mantra in terms of serving the students well and, and as we should, it also created some financial stability, right? And enhanced um, the continuing revenue stream and the ability to add to enrollment. So that was part of plan A. What were we offering? How well were we offering it? And what could we show the folks who were going to entrust us we could do in order to make them stay and come back? Uh, So that was part one of of plan A. Part two is to look at what were the um, underutilized assets or resources that we had. And one of the things that we did was we recognized that in many ways, Pyramina College was set up like a regular college with many layers of, of people serving in multifunctions. And what we really didn't have enough of were people who were focused directly on the student. And that that focus was critically important. We had a CFO, a controller, a director of finance. I mean, that's a big finance financial team for an entity of our size. And what we did was we looked at the areas where we, other areas across the college where we thought there wasn't enough going into student focus and said, can we reposition these resources to bring more to the students? So we did that. Um, again, that reinforced uh, the retention, which was important from a financial perspective. Then we looked at what were the auxiliary programs that we were running and were there additional auxiliary programs that we could run. We had a sizable campus um, that was being underutilized. Could we bring in related partnerships that would do what they did that was important and pay rent to the college, do programming for the college, all sorts of things, reduce our costs by adding uh, things that we couldn't do on our own, uh, shared services in many cases, Um, outsourcing some things that they could do much better than us, but that we needed um, mental health and wellness programs. Um, The Brookline Community Health Center became an important partnership for us. Partnering with the community action groups, who um, who we, one of the most important ones we do is with Freedom House. Freedom House is a community action group that provides success coaches to help young folks stay in high school, stay in, in K through eight grades. And we said, what if we partnered with them and had their success coaches continue to be the coaches of the students we admitted, reducing their costs, reducing our costs, but giving the student a better experience because it's somebody they already know, and that's gonna follow them four years in college. So there were all kinds of ways that we created auxiliary revenues, auxiliary resources for the college that strengthened our financial underpinning such that we were able to generate surpluses every year until uh, the COVID hit. So that felt really good. And uh, we would have been in a position to advance a capital campaign pre-COVID. And in terms of those things, several of the partnerships you described sound like they added capabilities, that they added to student support. 
Can you talk a little about what you did to bring in additional revenue stream? What types of things you were doing that were working before COVID? Yes. So our campus, like most campuses, was not being fully utilized year round. One of the ways we expanded our use of the campus was by bringing on cultural exchange programs. Some are programs that were providing English language skills to um, non-U.S. citizens who didn't speak English. Um, it was providing uh, summer educational programs, but not de for degree-seeking students. Um, that created a huge amount of revenue that made the campus full during the summertime. Matter of fact, we had more students on campus in the summertime than we did during the school year. Um, renting and leasing out excess space in uh, terms of athletic facilities, um, nearby high schools, um, private schools, under-resourced from our uh, athletics facility perspective, we provided athletic facilities. Um, re recognizing that our own beautiful advanced space was not being used when we didn't have programs. So deciding to go after the corporate market as training and seminar space, going after the um, wedding event planning uh, industry to bring in uh, revenues from there, all of which was very low cost because the fixed costs of the college were already there. And all you had to do is add the incremental costs of the salesperson or the planner or whatever that program needed. Uh, we also had a preschool on campus. Um, preschool, very valuable and important to the community, but also served as a practicum place for our early ed students. So we always tried to make sure it was never just a revenue generator. It was a revenue generator that either used important underutilized resource, valuable underutilized resources, or which programmatically added to what we were doing. Yeah. I think yeah. that many colleges, municipal or other type of partnerships make a lot of sense uh, where those same sort of resources are needed that the colleges usually have abundance of, but because sometimes the way we structure ourselves, oh, that's the English department's pro space, or that's the science space, uh, we set up arrangements with uh, lab companies uh, to be able to look at, and they were prepared to make an investment of $500,000 in our facilities in order to have shared use of the space. Mm -hmm. Things like that become really important. Uh, one of the ones that we didn't end up closing on uh, because of COVID uh, was a performing arts center. Um, a major new entity had established themselves $50 million worth of availability to create a new performing arts center in Boston. And uh, we were talking to them about doing that on campus here. So they would have built it, we would have used it, they would have used it, would have been employment opportunities for students as well as educational opportunities for students. Re really exciting. So so can you say a little about, um, as you're moving that forward, what what was what were you looking at as a plan B? It, it, you know, before the pandemic, it didn't sound like you needed it so much. You were making that progress, but but what what were you keeping in your back pocket in case? Plan B was very important because again, day one, we got put on probation. Within eighteen months, we were off, but on day one, we were put on probation. Um, within a year, there was an effort by the uh, town of Brookline, in which we reside, uh, to take over land through eminent domain. Um, the issues just kept coming at us. And so while we kept ourselves, and I think this was an important thing, 
keeping the Pine Manor College educational community, the faculty and staff, focused on the job of graduation retention, even when there was noise around us? How did we help them to be able to stay focused on those things and pull back the other issues so that it wasn't in their face every day? Sometimes we did better than others at doing that, but that made it very clear that we were fragile. And we started using that term, even on our webpage, in our reports to our creditors, in our reports to the state, that in our reports to the faculty and community, Pine Manor College is a financially fragile institution. And knowing that, we are going to plan B, we're going to prepare with a plan B. And what did plan B mean? Plan B meant that an important part of my job was to be in contact with other institutions, um, both higher ed and non-higher ed, to talk about ways we could build alliances, to talk about ways we could have shared um, services, to talk about ways in which we might complement each other. Um, when social justice uh, issues came to the surface a few years ago, I was talking to country, colleges all over the country who were asking about how they could have a shared experience at the Pine Manor College campus by having programs here, uh, knowing who we represented, who we served, could they be on campus and become part of that? DEI type training, things like that. So I began the process of talking to other institutions, meaningful institutions, so that they knew better who we were and what we could possibly do. We also looked at things like, what if the college stopped being a college and became a foundation, stopped being a college and became an institution? Um, we had open and candid conversations with board trustees, with the alumni and faculty about what we were doing, what we were thinking about, and inviting them to give us their ideas. And that was an important part of it. You have to invite others to share their thoughts around something and show that it's truly an open process and not that you're set in stone about what you're going to do. And when people get comfortable that their ideas are valued and considered, and hey, we're not gonna solve it today, but we wanna make sure we're all thinking about this because the number one job of a college president or any leader is to be about the future. What will we be, will there be a future for us? And what will we be then? So often we get stuck, especially in higher ed, about protecting the past, about worrying about preserving things. And quite honestly, I don't think there's a board that appoints anybody to worry about that. What they really hire us to do is to be bold and to figure out where the future's gonna be, because that's the only way we sustain in the long run. And so I think that by having those conversations with our own community, first and foremost, the faculty, the staff, the board, the alums, saying, I'm gonna be honest with you, we're financially fragile, the future's uncertain, we're going to work like heck on this plan A to make sure everything comes out in a way that's beautiful for our students, the people we serve. And you'll be part of that because you'll help help make it happen. But we're also going to have a plan B just in case. And we don't hope it's ever, we never expected it would be in a crisis situation like the one driven by COVID, but that it'll be in a planned way. And I, I think that people like that honesty and transparency. And it helps a president when talking to board members or alums who suddenly say, well, what about my favorite program? Or what about my favorite this? And you say, well, let's talk about it. Mm -hmm. And you begin the socialization that change might happen. 
And Tom, how did you balance that, you know, very transparent approach and talking about fragility with also wanting to build up your 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 class and attract students? Because I would think that that would be a, a big concern for the students, their parents. You know, will will the college be here in four years? You know, when I'm ready to graduate. And just curious how you navigated that. Yeah, I think that the world has changed. I think we were lucky a little bit. I don't think people expect that they're only going to go to one college nowadays. I think the vast majority of people think I may transfer if I'm not happy. If something doesn't work for me there, it's okay. Years ago, colleges made it very hard for students to transfer, residency requirements, etc. Today, that's that's been moving, shifting away. Colleges are welcoming students. They're waiving residency requirements. Um, they're doing it out of probably financial need, but people are making it easier and they're encouraging students to think about that. And I think we were in a position to say, look, we will give you an extraordinary experience while you're here. If it's, and we would say, if it's not right for you, we expect you'll transfer elsewhere. If we've done our job, we've made you more ready so you can transfer somewhere else, that might happen. And if we can't go forward financially, guess what? We're still gonna have the time to help you find the right spot. So I think again, the transparency was built around a thoughtfulness that helped people not just see the problem, but to see the future. I do think in higher ed transfers and the whole idea of going to one college for your whole career has changed. And that, that students don't make that commitment anymore. Colleges don't make that commitment anymore. Yeah, no, that, that's great. So you mentioned that, you know, with the progress you'd made, you were just getting ready to do a capital campaign. And I think at, at, at that point yes. in the fall before um, COVID hit, you had had an engagement with Deloitte, their higher ed practice. Can you tell us a little bit about that? What did you bring them in for and how did you manage to get them to do a study for you pro bono, given that you were, you know, now now put breaking even or, or better? Um, what I found about the, fo Deloitte has a specialty area in higher ed, um, extraordinary group of people who are absolutely committed to the success of higher ed. And when I had the happen chance to meet a partner there, Tim Hurley is his name. Um, Tim said to me, Tom, this is extraordinary what Pine Manor College is doing. We love the mission and we think we could be helpful. Tim, how could you help me? He said, well, you know, we can tell you what's working, what's not working. I said, I think I know that. He said, well, then we can give you the credibility that says what you know is true. <laughs> and I said, that would be <laughs> that was very because. <laughs> if we could go out and tell the world, hey, and Deloitte agrees that this roadmap, financial roadmap will work, then that's a great thing for a little old Pine Manor College to be able to do. And as we all know, oftentimes that's what consulting firms are invited to do, is to affirm uh, the direction that an institution wants to move in. Uh, they knew that we didn't have the resources. They also knew there were a number of colleges around us specifically that were in trouble, um, Newbury College, Mount Ida College. And we felt as though we might be a good partner for those colleges. So we were also on our plan B thinking about how we could strengthen ourselves by partnering with other colleges. And they actually liked that idea. And they knew we didn't have the resources to afford uh, Deloitte. 
And they said, uh, let us help you with that. Let us help you make the case for why you'd be an excellent partner for either of these programs. And um, they put together a, a very credible uh, report that said that Pymana College is financially stable at this point. It does, uh, with the incremental gro growth in students to X number, they'll be perfectly fine, all of which was reasonable. It wasn't like we had to do it. They have this unusual model where 57% of the revenues are now come from auxiliary programs, which is funding the student population that attends their college. So they were very comfortable that there was this uh, holistic formula that uh, really was unique and um, was doing the trick. And so on February 8th, we had a presentation uh, to our board about the capital campaign we were going to launch. <laughs> Unfortunately, as you know, uh, COVID shut down those revenue streams. Those and We didn't have enough equity to be able to say we could keep going forward. Uh, so that was why we changed course and went to plan B. So, so talk us through that plan B. So you, you've done all this hard work. You got to the stage where, you know, you remarkably really, because I don't know of any other colleges where more than half the revenue was coming from auxiliary revenue. And then a pandemic none of us could have anticipated comes. All of those revenue streams go away quickly. Um, and so how do you pivot then? What what do you look at? And, and all of this happened pretty quick. So can you talk us through the sequence of what happened? Then? Um, yeah, it did happen very quick uh, because you know, mid-March, we're all realizing something's not right here and we have to take action. Um, one of the things that was important and always been important in my leadership experiences and make sure that you lead with your values. Um, we had a, a large, our population, uh, uh, low income, many of the students couldn't go home. And uh, we made the decision that we would remain open through the spring in order to ensure that anyone who needed a place would have a place. And um, we probably had, we had a very sizable number of our students uh, staying on campus. So that was uh, important that whatever we did made sure that transition was smooth for our students. Um, we decided, first of all, to look, let's look at our resources and who can help us. A number of uh, donors who had pledged money for different purposes uh, knew that we were thinking about a capital campaign, uh, immediately freed up their uh, pledges and fulfilled their pledges up front uh, as a way to help us out, uh, creating unrestricted funds that could be used. Uh, we were fortunate to get a PPP loan uh, that will be converted to a grant shortly. Um, we also, our bank um, was immediate. Um, they had experienced the turnaround. They'd been here the entire town. They'd experienced the, the turnaround. They knew of the Deloitte report. Uh, they uh, knew of my background. And uh, they said, tell us what you need. We'll give you funding for it. Um, they stepped up with the $2.5 million uh, right away. We felt as though we needed um, to convince all parties that we should go forward, that we would need more money. Um, we decided to think about uh, borrowing against our endowment. Uh, we did go to the Attorney General's office. They were not excited about that idea. Uh, they felt as though uh, Pymana College had been financially fragile for too long and that this was probably the time that we couldn't go forward. Um, I disagree with that, but nonetheless, uh, we took that for what it was. And um, we, we cobbled together a lot, but not enough of what I thought 
could sustain us because at that time we still didn't know how long this pandemic was. We didn't, even, we weren't even wearing masks. I mean, except for stores that made us, we weren't doing all sorts of things, right? And we just didn't understand how long it was. At the, so knowing that, I began reaching out to the colleges and, that we had been talking to and saying, look, we, I want to rethink where we are. And I want to, um, we've talked before about, could we do things together? And uh, would you be interested? And what, before I did that, I talked to the board and I had talked to the community saying, look, we have challenges and I got to try and find a soft landing for us. I can't tell you exactly what's going to happen because I don't know, but I'll keep you informed as we go along. Uh, with the board, um, I wanted to be crystal clear, and we had established this before the pandemic, but I wanted to be crystal clear that if we ever had to invoke plan B, what were the most important things we had to do? And the answer was very straightforward, very clear, and we shared it with faculty, staff, everybody. We will take care of our students, we'll take care of our people, and we'll take care of our mission and legacy. That's what we must do. Take care of our students. We needed a way to make sure they could transition safely. We needed a way to make sure that they they had the opportunity to continue financially. We needed to make sure things would work for them. Our people, same thing. If there wasn't continued employment, would they get a severance? Uh, all those sort of things. How could we help make it happen for them? Mission and legacy. There was only one reason why we were in business, and that was to make sure that underrepresented, under-resourced communities of students would get access to college education and be able to advance themselves. So that's what we had to take care of. Um, that's what we told each party. And everybody came back with a different idea. Some people it was easy to say no to quickly because they didn't grasp the values piece. They, they were eager to partner. Hey, we'd love to have your campus. Hey, we'd love to have your kids. Hey, we'd, you know, uh, we'll give everyone a job. But they didn't understand what we were, what was driving us at the core. And so the values piece became really important. And um, the board started shifting. We started thinking in our conversations, maybe we should just close and become a granting institution, a foundation, and make sure that all of the money goes to these types of programs, schools and other programs that are doing exactly what we're doing. And out of the blue, really, the chief financial officer of Boston College called me. He had come for a visit to the, we had a mutual friend and he had come to visit the college maybe a year before, half a year before. And um, he's a true social justice warrior, John Burke. And he loved what we were doing. And he always said, Tom, if there's anything BC can ever do, let us know. Well, I didn't think to call him because I wasn't sure how these two institutions come together. Here's this, you know, R1 research institution. Here's Pine Manor College serving college-capable students, and how would it all work? And um, John picked up the phone call and said, Tom, is there anything we can do to help? And I thought, well, you know, we have underutilized um, resident halls. Uh, would BC want to rent some rooms for next year? He said, uh, well, let me talk to President Leahy and find out what he thinks. And he called me back and he said, Father says if it's helpful, we'd be willing to do it. We're not sure we need them. Now, this is Pre-COVID, right? Nobody's thinking. I mean, it's middle of COVID, but we don't know it. <laughs> we don't know enough. And, um, you know, we'd be happy to be helpful. Why don't you come over and we'll talk about it? And I had a restless nice night that night um, before going over there. And I said, um, 
you know, let me tell you what we're really interested in. And we talked about the three important values, taking care of our students, taking care of our people, taking care of our mission legacy. And I said, um, I would be willing to do some type of integration, merger, whatever the right word is, uh, to figure out how we can protect these three things. And uh, President Leahy he said, well, when would you want it to be done? And I said, next week. And then he said, how can we do that? And I said, well, my view has always been that good people with good intentions can get things done. And you're the president of BC and I'm the president of Pine Manor College. And if we've done our job to this day with our boards and our communities, then we should be able to get something done. And so he said, okay, let's think about this. And uh, we spoke, um, uh, that was like a Wednesday. And we spoke each day a little bit. And on Sunday night, he and I had a very long conversation. And he said, tell me what you're trying to do again. And what does it mean to take care of? And I said, I need to make sure that our students have a chance to graduate at a cost they can afford. I need to know that our people have employment opportunities or that they can be taken care of if there aren't. I need to know that there's something we can do to create um, a sustaining enterprise for the mission of Pine Manor College. He says, talk to me about that. And I said, um, well, when I think about BC, I think if we walked down the street and talked to anybody about Boston College and said, what do you think about that? They would say one of three things. They would say, wow, what a financial powerhouse. They would say, wow, what an athletic powerhouse. Or they'd say, wow, what an academic powerhouse. I probably couldn't even get in there today. I said, but the one thing they wouldn't say, even if you do many good things around it, is they wouldn't say, oh, what a social justice powerhouse. They said, and I would like to figure out how to make Pine Manor College the catalyst for making the fourth thing that people say about Boston College is, wow, what a social justice powerhouse. And he was really taken by that. And he said, you know that we do many good things, but I think you're right. I think that this could become uh, a way to do that. And we agreed that on Monday morning we would get together and the two of us would start drafting what a proposal would look like. And um, by the end of the day, we had drafted something, mostly the two of us sending emails, cutting and pasting, and I'm not sure either one of us is very good at that. <laughs> uh, and uh, we weren't smart enough to use a Google Doc, but you know, that's how we did it. And the question was, now what? And we both agreed that we would go to our boards and tell them what we did. And that by the next, by that week, so that was a Monday, by Thursday, we had to communicate what we were doing to the community. It might've been Wednesday, but it was pretty quick. And um, we both called executive committee meeting, board meetings. And uh, I had a full board meeting. I think he had an executive board meeting. Uh, Tuesday morning, we each met with them. Um, both sides came back and said yes. And um, on, we, went from there to a memorandum of understanding, uh, signed that at 3.30 in the afternoon on uh, the prescribed uh, Wednesday or Thursday, whatever it was, and um, uh, informed all of the regulators and, um, and everyone who needed to know. I, of course, had been talking to the regulators all along. Uh, 
from that very first day that the accreditors told me we were put on probation, I always kept them informed of what we're doing, plan A, plan B. Um, wanted to make sure that everyone knew that we're doing everything we could do to be successful, but that if we weren't, we're prepared to do the things we had to do in order to take care of our students, our people, and our mission legacy. Under the agreement um, that we adopted with Boston College, um, it was agreed that all students that, and uh, President Leahy was, was thoughtful about this. He said, they can te we'll teach them out over the next two years. That'll take care of the vast majority of your students. They can get their degrees. Or if they want to apply to, to Woods College at Boston College, they can apply and transfer and finish their degree here. So they can stay and get the Pymana College degree. They can come to BC. Um, this is the way we'll do it. Woods College is their continuing ed program. And uh, it made great sense. Uh, they agreed to do it at the same net cost. They're $75,000, we're $45,000. They said, we'll take care of it, don't worry about it. Um, the students deserve it. We're gonna make sure it works for them. Um, we'll uh, uh, offer employment. We'll let your faculty and staff teach them out so they'll have that window of time. Uh, we'll, we'll make them eligible for positions that open up at BC. And if in the event nobody gets anything, we'll give them this very long, very generous severance package. And, um, and that felt like it was doing the right thing of taking care of our people. And then um, we talked about uh, creating the Pine Manor Institute for Student Success as a way of changing the complexion of Boston College, as a way of bringing in uh, more access, creating more access to Boston College. Um, uh, and from underrepresented communities. And um, Boston College, you know, was founded that way. It was founded on bringing in the children of immigrants who uh, didn't have access to other colleges in Massachusetts at the time, uh, gave them their first rung up on the ladder. Uh, they were appreciative and sent their kids there and started paying for their kids to go there. Those kids were appreciative and started paying for their kids to go there and sending money to help support the institution. And they created a virtuous cycle of people who felt appreciated, rewarded, thankful, gratitude, and gave their money back. And we agreed that wouldn't it be great if we could do the same thing all over again with the next generation. And this was exciting to BC, it was exciting to us. Uh, we agreed to do that. We would have to do two things. We would have to uh, endow it with sufficient resources to be able to actually fulfill that mission we would have to agree on what that mission is. And we would have to ensure that all of the existing programs at BC that are supporting this type of student uh, get brought under it. So it's not competing, but it's one. And this would give it mass within BC so that it would truly be the fourth leg of that stool, um, that foundation that was supporting BC for its future. So uh, we wrangled around what the number would be. Uh, we agreed on $50 million. Today, that number is $72 million within one year, and it will continue to grow. Um, and the mission, uh, most simply put, is to recruit, retain, and graduate underrepresented first-generation uh, students to Boston College. We envision and are working on all the elements of that and how it comes together and how it works. And we're envisioning other aspects of it that um, President Leahy, to his credit, has taken this wholeheartedly 
and said, we want this to be a critical part of what we do. And he is envisioning a reinvention of Pine Manor College to make that happen. And it's probably one of the most exciting things that happening. Right now, we're talking about engaging students at the eighth grade level, um, providing them with supports uh, on at their school site. Um, in summers, bringing them to campus, paying them to come to campus as part, so that they're not choosing between work and education, um, and uh, giving them uh, free access to college if they succeed in this program over the course of their, their high school years, uh, middle and high school years, and uh, giving them two years of support after they graduate to make sure that they have the skills to navigate in new careers. You know, as first-gen students, they don't know, they don't have family and support to show them how to help them with these things. So making sure that it's a, it's a huge commitment over a long period of time. Um, and uh, it's very exciting. So we feel as though uh, we have transitioned. Um, we feel as though we've been a catalyst for something very important at a major institution. Um, the Boston College community is extraordinarily excited about it. And um, we get that vibe every day. So we feel like we've done what we wanted to do. It's a remarkable story, Tom. And I just wanted to probe a little on a couple of elements of it. So um, if I understand correctly, you had been in your plan B talking to a lot of other local institutions, not, not as well resourced as BC. Given that shared history of what BC had been about and that they were a neighbor, why weren't they a part of the plan B earlier? And then what was it that enabled you from not having had those preliminary discussions to lay the groundwork to convince President Leahy to take a step like this in the midst of a pandemic? Now, admittedly, it's not as big a crisis for them as you, but as you noted, none of us knew, like, were we going to have students on campus when we would have... You know, and so to take something on on this time frame without a prior relationship, it, it, it really, I, I mean, I don't know of any that's moved this quick, even where the two parties were, you know, really had worked a lot together before. So I'm just curious on, you know, th that pre-work and then how were you able to go so fast and in such a dramatic way? Well, I, uh, I always, as I always say, it takes a village. And there were a lot of um, layers of relationships in that existed. Uh, John Burke, the CFO, you know, here he is saying that it's so important from a faith perspective, from a social justice perspective, what we're doing, that he thinks that this should happen. So President Leahy had, you know, probably the toughest person to convince the financial guy saying, this is important socially. What do you mean? What's the finances behind it? Right. And so that was a, a, a power, he played a very powerful role in doing that. Um, and not that he, he dismissed the financials of it, but that he recognized that what they were and what was the ability of Boston College to uh, handle those financial um, issues. So he played a very important role in giving confidence to. Um, we were not unknown to Boston College. Um, Pine Manor College in building its brand had been splattered over the headlines of the Boston Globe for years, my five years here, um, it, because of the things that we were doing. And so 
we got attention for the important work we were doing. So we weren't just another small college. We were another small college that was doing something very unique and important and had become valued in the, in the community. Um, I think that President Leahy is a very thoughtful and it didn't take my convincing of him. I think that this helped him fulfill a mission that he had of how could Boston College um, capstone their work in the area of social justice. They've been doing a lot of good things. And this was a way of doing something very large and impactful all at once. And so I think he was very mindful of that. And um, that was important to the whole Boston College community. Uh, they are a faith-based community. Uh, social justice is an important thing, a part of what they do. Anyone who applies there knows that that's one of the expectations. Um, so I think that um, when we were when seen in that light as a shared values set of values, that it was much easier for them to make the decision, knowing that hey there are risks. The financial guy says hey they're surmountable. Um, we can get through them. Uh, being very transparent, hey we had done the homework, the due diligence already. We knew what were the gaps, the the risks. Uh, we could show them all of it. It didn't take much effort to do that. Deloitte had just come in and done this total analysis of who we are. So we had all the pieces to make it easy. And we had a history of being transparent. So we weren't uncomfortable with it. We knew who we were. Uh, we knew that we we're making great strides, but that we'd suddenly hit something that we couldn't surmount. Mm -hmm. So I, I think that those things came together. Um, President Leahy had done extraordinary things with Boston College. And those, you know, those that athletic performance, that academic performance, that financial performance, he owns. He deserves the credit for. When he looked at an opportunity to um, enhance what he wanted to do on the social justice side, um, I think it became apparent why it made sense. The the speed of everything. I think we did have our ducks in order. We did have. We were a well-run small college. It was easy to see the things that um, needed to be addressed. I think that uh, we were fortunate that um, because no one was surprised by the work we were doing, including these conversations with other colleges and with Boston College, that uh, they knew that uh, we were good at our word and we were being transparent and that this was a good thing both for the community, for the students, for our people, for our mission, that it was kind of easier to accept. I think a lot of times leaders, whether it's through ego or fear or distrust or whatever combination of things, are afraid of talking about the things that aren't right with them. We should always lead with our strengths. There's no question. But everyone knows that everyone has weaknesses or gaps. And so the question is, can you sincerely talk about them and what you're going to do with them? As a leader, it's so important for us to make sure we're not um, throwing money down the drain by supporting things that we shouldn't be supporting. Have we truly prioritized or are we just giving lip service to prioritization? So I think that Pine Ridge College had done all those things. It had been very good at sizing up what its capabilities were. It had been very good at sizing up what its uh, wherewithal to fulfill those uh, capabilities were. And we knew what we didn't have. And so I think that those things made it easy. And tell, tell us a little more in terms of the finances. 
in the midst of a pandemic like this, even for an institution as relatively uh, well off as BC, to come up with $50 million, that, that's a huge commitment to do in such a short time. Was that already part of the deal as you went public with it? And how did it how did that transpire relative to your your existing endowment, your debts, and sort of the way those came together in the Pine Manor Institute? Yeah. Um, so Boston College uh, came up with the 50 million immediately, day of closing day, which was uh, within 45 days of the announcement. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. Uh, came up with the 50 million right then and there. They uh, took ownership of all of our debts and obligations. Uh, that helped anyone who was concerned about would they be paid. They could take, they could make things easy for us. They didn't have to be knocking at the door. They knew they were going to be paid. Um, they um, took care of our endowment was preserved as is, fulfilling whatever restrictions are on them. They'll continue to do that. Um, so uh, they had the wherewithal. Uh, President Leahy had the wherewithal, uh, supported by John Burke, to be able to say, we can do this. Uh, let's put up the money as we need to. And that's what they've been doing. They've made it and they've invested. Uh, after the fact, they've come to the table with significant investments, improving the property, deferred maintenance. As President Leahy said, I never want a Pioneer College student to think that they were a second class citizen while we were involved. And so he has done everything, subsidizing them, taking care of them throughout the um, pandemic. Uh, Boston College has stepped right up in every way to make sure that um, the facilities are better than ever. Uh, the students have been treated on every front better than ever. And uh, so they had the wherewithal. They were the right partner to pick. And they had the good intentions and the social justice commitment to be able to do those things. And was there anything in that about what what the long-term use of the campus will be, the original Pine Manor? Yep. First of all, it has to be preserved as a campus. And the intentions is that this will be where the... Um, so one of the things that President Leahy has recognized is that by having a residential program, uh, Pine Manor College was particularly effective with our students because most of them don't get to go into a residential program. And this allows them time away from many of the day-to-day -day challenges that they face at home. And it gives them a safe place and a nurturing place academically, right? Which so often their families don't even understand, right? Uh, I came from that environment. People didn't know why I was going to college. You know, people didn't know what I was going to do with a degree in government. Uh, and so sometimes they'd say, why don't you just work at the job? You know, you could get a good job right now. Why don't you just do that? So the residential environment creates um, a supportive space for, for students. And he recognizes that and he would like to continue that. And so the goal is to figure out what's the best formula for doing that. And we're working on that. And can you talk us through from, you know, that very uh, concentrated time that sounds like about a week and a half from the first conversation till you actually had the agreement public? What was the subsequent set of events in terms of, or, or even during that period, did you get lawyers involved for the MOU? You, you were in touch with the regulators. Were, were, were you getting their okay before you made the announcement, the accreditors, and then all, all of your, you know, often with these kinds of things, you have a lot of professional service firms and months to lay out the communications plan and all of that. 
it sounds like, you know, all of this was compressed in an incredible way. So how did you manage that from, from that point to the subsequent closing of the, the formal partnership? Well, uh, my apologies to all the professional service folks who help out in these situations. My sense is the biggest challenge, the biggest thing that makes their work hard on them and hard on those of us who aren't professional service providers is that the business terms haven't been thought out enough. And so the business terms are really not in their purview. They often have experience and tell you what happens around things. But you, as the, the educational leader, know what are the critical business components, right? What has to happen? What does taking care of students mean? Uh, yep, there's going to be all kinds of liabilities and risks associated with everything we do. But if we can't agree on the outcomes we want, then they really can't do their job of protecting us. Right? Um, so one of the things that, that I think I said to President Leahy, he said, how will we get this done so fast? And I said, well, if you and I are crystal clear on all the business terms, when they come and ask us, what did we mean by that? We'll be able to tell them exactly what we meant and we'll be saying the same thing. So let's make sure you and I are really crystal clear on what these things mean. And so by doing that, I think we helped everybody. We, we, we were clear, we weren't confused. What did it mean to take care of students? It meant that they'd be able to teach out over a two year period. What did it mean when we said you take care of their, their financial aid packages so that there's no net cost increase to them? That's very clear. Let's no net cost, not just on tuition, not just on room and board, but no net cost. So by being very crystal clear about the business pieces uh, or what the the I'm calling them business pieces, but what it meant to take care of students, what it meant to take care of people, what it meant to take care of me, then everyone else's job was much easier because they weren't back and forth. What did you mean by this? You know, or aren't you afraid this will happen to you if you do that? Or do you think they're getting too good of a deal or not enough of a deal? You know, we didn't try to have everything in the world. We tried to have the most important things. And we said, we also said at one point, um, are you an honest person? We each said, yes. I said, then we should be able to work these things out, the little things out after the fact. So, so talk to us, having taken care of those really big things, how, how has it evolved uh, since, since the agreement was signed? Um, it, it, it's obviously happening in this, still in this extraordinary time of the pandemic and everything. Have there been things that surprised you along the way, negatively, positively? How, how has it played out? I think we knew in the beginning the biggest challenge would be culture, right? They're a massive enterprise. For them to move or change involves so many more people. They have a system. They're built on a system, how things work, how things get done. And we're small, right? I can pick up the phone, tell three people we're going to do something. We go and do it, right? We're all done. So we knew that that would be a challenge from the beginning. What we were surprised by in a very positive way was how humbly and respectfully everybody from BC came to us to talk about things. President Leahy set the tone. People would say, President Leahy says, this is one of the most important things we've ever done. How can we help? So that was very powerful. Now, everything didn't happen the way we thought it would. You know, hey, we're gonna come over and pave the roads tomorrow. Tomorrow? 
yeah, we're going to pave everything. We want it to, we want to fix it up for you. You get a lot of potholes tomorrow. <laughs> so, you know, sometimes their machine was running and we didn't know it was running. Right? And, and you literally could be steamrolled. <laughs> <laughs> you could be steamrolled. The good thing was all we had to do was move the cars quickly. Right. Um, so uh, I think that uh, those were the, the issues were that they were big and they had systems and we were small and we didn't. I would say also the way we use different language. Um, I would say that uh, we were, our social justice language was on the front of everything we said. Well, as theirs might not have been because they have a much bigger enterprise with many different types of people. And so that came together increasingly, which was good. And um, they were so gracious to adopt so many, so much of the language that we used which was really powerful. Um, we spent a lot of time learning from each other. Um, we still will sometimes say, are they really hearing us? You know, because they're so big. Um, so that can be frustrating. That can be frustrating. You know, they didn't understand what I said. Okay, let's say it again. We're used to it, right? We know who we are. We're used to hearing our language and knowing what we mean by it. So two cultures when they come together is always hard. Uh, they've been more than generous. Uh, they, as I said, you know, President Lay said, I never want a primary college student to feel like a second class citizen. Um, they made the decision to not be remote in the fall. And we made the decision to be remote in the fall. We felt it was an important social justice issue for our students. They had less capability. They were more, in, their families were much more impacted. Um, th there was a strong feeling by the community that we should be remote once the fall came. Um, they were not going to be that. That was a, what's this going to mean, right? Is that going to cause a problem for BC? Is that going to, you know, and President Lay said, you're president. We hired you to make the right decisions about what you're doing over there. We, we expect you're going to keep doing that. That's what we'd like to see. Do the right thing. Uh, we support you. So um, lots of head bumps in the road, right? Things happen. Nothing's intentional. It's always been because somebody didn't realize or somebody didn't get the message or whatever. Um, he's always given me a direct line uh, to him, John Burke, uh, the CFO, uh, the whole senior leadership team, uh, extraordinary people in terms of their willingness to, to help us and work with us. Uh, we typically had students over the summer and over winter break. We don't send them home because many of our students don't have a place to go home. Um, that was new for them. They immediately found housing options, they immediately found a way to keep them supported. Um, so in senior level, people would step up and say, I've got this, let me get involved. So I would say that it's been very good. Uh, it's hard for us. You know, we're emotional about what we do. Uh, there, this is change. Uh, change is always hard. Um, but, uh, I think that it's very promising and I think that the intentions are there and the deeds are there and that we'll continue to advocate for that mission and legacy. And they will, I know very well, will make sure that it comes into something really big at the end. And another big cultural difference in addition to the size, the systems you talked about is, you know, the profile of their faculty, R1 is very much research focused as well as teaching. Obviously yours was a very mission-driven, teaching-focused faculty. How is that working in the transition in terms of 
the ability of those faculty, some of them to transition into BC for the long term and thinking about those two differences. Yeah. yeah, that hasn't happened yet, but President Leahy and I have talked about that very importantly, is how will we measure that? Um, I don't think that any of the Pymena College faculty members would anticipate being tenured tracked at uh, BC. It's just a very different program, but there's likely opportunities within um, uh, professor of the practice, uh, in institutions, in a variety of other spots that faculty always fill in, in, in colleges of higher, in institutions of higher ed. So I think that that's increasingly something we've put focus on. He and I had a one-year review, May 5th, uh, where we were on everything. And this was one of the areas we wanted to spend more time on to make sure we understood how to make sure it's handled properly. Um, uh, I think that um, we'll see where that goes. Um, but again, if it doesn't work out, then people have a very, very good mitigator in the terms of, in the form of severance. And how has your own role changed over this year? I don't have nearly the fundraising responsibilities <laughs> or the recruiting responsibilities I have. Uh, that's been a big change. Um, they've asked me to stay on as president, at least through the teach out and uh, longer, depending on how we develop it. Uh, there'll be different concepts about what the Pine Manor Institute and its associate programs end up actually looking like. Um, it's exciting to be able to be part of that. Uh, I am used to being having a lot more to do. I mean, the hard part is that we're transitioning with students to a teach out. And so we're going to go through a period where we have no students, and that'll be part of the process uh, until we figure out what the next generation looks like. Um, I think that the key is make sure we went into this with the same arrangement for me as we did for everybody else. That's an important selling point to your own community, right? You weren't the big cheese who got took, taken care of in a special way, right? We're all in the same boat here. Uh, that helps with a lot of other decisions. Um, BC has been great in terms of asking me for my input, inviting me to participate in things in giving me uh, room to help them think through the things that they're doing, uh, consulting regularly. Um, so I'm not so focused on it. Uh, what I like is that uh, no one got dropped like, you know, hey, it's the new day, you're out, you're in. It's been a process of transition that I think uh, will work out fine for everybody. It seems like mergers, partnerships, shared services, this type of arrangement with all the pressures that higher ed is under are only going to increase in, in the coming coming years. As you sort of reflect on this whole process, you've been through not just the actual deal with BC, but the plan A and play, plan B you had before. Are, are there lessons you would draw for other college university precedents in how to think about this, how to lay the groundwork for it with your organizations and how to you know, to actually bring about what seems like an extremely successful transition that you've been able to do? Well, I, I appreciate uh, the kind words. You know, I think that um, most of my career has been in industry, and I think that higher ed is unusually not transparent. Corporations, especially if they're public ones, have results every quarter at a minimum. Internally, they're every day. The same thing with most privates. 
is everyone sees the register. They know what's happening on a day-to-day basis. Higher ed seems to have this continued ability to obfuscate things. And I think that's a mistake. I think that people have to really be comfortable that higher ed is a business. It's how people make a living, whether they're faculty or staff, that there are certain key elements that make that work or not work, and that people have to get more comfortable about thinking about the business side of higher ed, the economics of higher ed. Some people are, some people aren't. Um, We would have, you know, every month we would do financial results. Um, Some people understood it, some people didn't. Then we'd say, okay, let's pretend it's a checkbook. Let's not obfuscate it, just like we did with students. Uh, Let's not speak in accounting language and confuse people. Let's show it in dollars and cents in a way that they can understand it. So I think that one of the lessons I would say is that colleges should get very comfortable with being truly transparent about their financial wherewithal, their fragility, or their strength. And there should be a sense that the reason why we're here truly is to educate. The world has changed, right? Many of our colleges had walls up around them because they were protecting something. They were keeping people out. They were protecting information that was in. They were protecting knowledge, we called it. Today, a lot of that information is available free. And what we're really asking higher ed to do is educate to bring the population along. This whole anti-higher ed thing is because we haven't really brought everybody along. We haven't really opened up the gates to figure out how to move people on. But I think that if we we stop thinking about it as a preservation program, but as an accelerated, but as an accelerated for society, then we'll be better. Then we'll be able to make changes the way we need to. If all we're doing again, as I said in the early part, we're re- as presidents and as leaders within colleges, we're really being hired to ensure there's a future, not to preserve the past. And that means we have to be very knowledgeable of what it's going to take to be here in the future. I think that Pine Minute College figured out a way to ensure that its missions and values are here for the long term. And I think that other institutions will find other ways of doing that. Uh, Mills College right now, doing some, yep. trying to find a pathway forward, right? We both know Beth, terrific, and we'll find a successful way forward. Uh, we've seen it with other colleges, Marlboro College in Emerson. Um, it doesn't always have to be traditional merger with two people, two institutions come together. It can be with non-higher ed folks. It might be today with private industry folks. It might be with those people who need your technological capabilities, physical or intellectual. It may be with um, the community you're in. Uh, There's a shared value to most of our small colleges in the communities they're in, but we still often operate as standalone. Are we sharing in the fire services, the police services, in the medical services? Are there things in the educational programs of those communities? And are we doing it deeply in a way that they want to see mutual success? Um, So I think that the key is to be bold and comfortable to be honest about who we are, what our capabilities are, what our gaps are, to communicate well about that, and to do what we're really you know, paid to do, which is create that vision and to share it out, make sure that we've invited comment, but that we're comfortable pushing back where things don't make sense. 
know that we don't know all the answers ourselves, but that with good input and with the critical thinking skills that we're so proud of that we have, we can build a pathway forward and always have a plan A and always have a plan B. So, so Tom, one of the things that I think comes through loud and clear in everything you've shared up till now is, is the centrality of mission to how you approached it and what we were about. To me, another interesting sort of paradox when you think about higher ed relative to other sectors is, I would say on the whole, higher ed institutions are among the most mission driven of, of, of the different kinds of institutions that are out there. And yet when you look at it versus you know, where you worked in auto parts or in banking or others, in those sectors, people don't equate bringing two institutions, to two organizations together as a, a failure or that you've lost, right? They say, is this going to help us achieve what we're about? And yet in higher ed, even with that mission focus, people don't seem to be able to separate independence from the idea that you there may be ways to do your mission like you were doing with all the auxiliary revenue and partnerships before BC that actually can enhance mission, right? And so I, I'm curious as you've thought about it, do, do you see that it, at higher ed as an outlier that way? And how do we get boards or leaders to think that actually there may be ways to enhance mission that may or may not mean we continue as we were as an organization? Well, nobody wants to give up their job, right? So that's always the big fear in these equations. When corporations do things, they're usually asking two questions. You know, how do I better serve the customer and how do I improve shareholder value? That's who they're serving, right? The customer feeds the shareholder value, but they're very clear on who they're helping. I'm not sure higher ed's always very clear on who it's helping. Um, if the student is central, not research, if the student is central, not alumni relations, if the student is central, then there's a whole bunch of things we have to ask about, well, what are we doing in that other area? Why is that so important? And it isn't all uh, driven towards efficiency. Right. Many small colleges will succeed and continue. You know, what are there, 3,500 colleges in the U.S.? Mm-hmm. Uh, they'll succeed because either they're central to this community of students they're serving locally. That becomes harder and harder as technology enables people to move away and, you know, opportunity causes people to move away. Um, but it isn't all about being bigger. It really is about being better, right? Today, if we look at all the major banks out there, everyone knows that in their community, there are new community banks opening up every day. Why is that? How is that possible? Well, it's possible because they're meeting a service need that the big banks can't. Big colleges will have trouble serving everybody. One of the challenges that state colleges have is they're so big that they can only serve the big middle well. They may have a great research group doing this, or they may have a great you know, entry-level program doing this, but by and large, they're serving the big middle. So there are lots of people who, with their dollars, because they have the wherewithal, will choose to go other places. But then we truly have to be exceptional in what we're doing. And the outcomes have to be really good for students. Um, you know, one of my, the I often quote that famous Latin rapper Cicero. <laughs> 
And we joke about him being a rapper because, you know, he was a poet, philosopher, a statesperson. And um, he helped set the direction of um, academic thought in the Roman Empire. Uh, in his defense of Achaeus, who um, uh, was trying to acknowledge his citizenship within the Roman Empire, Cicero said, spoke about the importance of education. And, you know, the Roman world came from a militaristic, a very functional role. You know, you learned engineering, you learned military, you learned things to make, to build. And the Greek philosophy was that you learn more just for education purposes. And Cicero challenged, why does it have to be one or the other? And he said, these pursuits, he's talking about education, a rounded, a liberal, what we today we would call liberal arts education. These pursuits nourish youth, delight old age, embellish prosperity, and afford a refuge and a comfort in adversity. He said that education has to do the whole thing. It isn't just about educating them for art and literature and you know es the esoteric goods of that. It's also about outcomes, embellish prosperity, help people to advance their lives socially, economically as well. And I think sometimes we lose sight of that. Who are we trying to serve and why are we trying to serve them? Under the old system of higher education being limited to a few, that meant mostly very wealthy people were going and they could do whatever they wanted because they didn't need this education to advance them. They had the access to other resources with or without that education. As we expand the education to opportunity to more people, they need to know that there's a concrete outcome from that. At Pine Manor College, we, we insisted on remaining a liberal arts college. Many people wanted us to become just a health and bioscience college so that everybody could get a job right away. And we said, no, the Ciceronian type thought process of being critical thinkers who could go beyond. We're gonna talk about educating with purpose. And so we began the process of talking about how that liberal arts education did have purpose. So many people think liberal arts, what's that? What are you gonna do with a liberal arts degree, right? And we said, no, it's giving them life learning skills. And this is how in this rapidly changing economy where you and I can no longer predict what the jobs are gonna be out there, that they will be able to compete for those jobs. And so I think that in higher ed, we have to come back to why do we do what we do? And for most of us, there are those research institutions that they're doing it just for the pure science and they're serving a different function. That for most of us who are educating the, the population, we have to make sure that what we're giving them is something that will advance their social welfare and that's intellectual and social welfare. And so I think that the more we become concrete about that and challenge ourselves on whether we're doing that, then we'll be more uh, relevant to the, to the students who are out there. Um, and it's also true that if we're not, you know, I often say that Pine Manor College when I first came here was, had good intentions, but it was acting like a traditional college, you know, we did what everybody did. Everybody has to show up in the financial aid office in order. You got to make an appointment. You got to show up and you got to fill out your forms. Well, guess what? If the parents are undocumented or the parents don't speak that language or the parents don't know what you mean when you say an asset or revenue or whatever, and the kids are mostly doing it themselves, the young folks are mostly doing it themselves, and they're supposed to be in class and they actually have work. Maybe they can't show up. Maybe they didn't show up because they didn't understand what you really want them to do. So we turned it around and said, let's have the financial aid team sit in the student center. 
let's put up a big thermometer that makes it exciting for everyone to fill out their FAFSA form. We can help them do it. And let's make sure we have people who can speak in the languages that the families understand. And let's not say we're only open nine to five. Let's make sure we text them at night to say, hey, I know you're at work right now. How about if? And let's change it so that we're really student focused, that they're the centrality of what we're doing. And that will enable us to be successful. That will enable us to shift because if our focus is on the centrality of what we're trying to do, educate the populace in a way that they understand that they can make use of it, then we're going to have, it's going to be easier to make other decisions about what matters and what doesn't matter. Sorry for that long. No, that that was fascinating. And I think it it touched on elements of of one of my last questions, which is when you look at the five years at Pine Manor, what is it that you're most proud of and what you've been able to achieve during this time? I think the most powerful thing has been our outcomes for sure, that we grew that graduation rate up to 44% from 23, and it was just going to keep climbing. So I feel really good about that. It's not big numbers in the scheme of things, but it's three times the national average for the demographic we're serving. So I I feel as though we were making the right progress and that would have continued. Um, I feel that what we really did was preserve the three things that were important, taking care of our students, our people, and our mission legacy. Um, I, I think that when we say what is important, that we turn good intentions into intentionality. And that's something so often all of us miss in other parts of our lives. You know, have we done our share of what we should be doing? And have we really delivered on the outcomes we promised? Um, so I, I think those are the big things that we're really proud of, that we were able to find a way to perpetuate the mission and values of Pine Manor College through a bigger entity, uh, hopefully a catalyst for them to be doing even more than what we were able to do. And just a final question, Tom. So you really, in this relatively short period of time, you were successful twice, first in engineering a a, a real turnaround uh, for the college and getting it in the black and whatnot, and then pivoting quickly when the pandemic hit to, to figure out a way to achieve those three core core aims. When you think about all of those experiences you had before coming to Pine Manor, what, what do you think it was that most prepared you to successfully navigate these challenging waters? One, you know, the simple thing would be to say family, faith, education, uh, and I'd add Boy Scouts. Uh, <laughs> And, you know, and what that means to me is having lots of good experiences in life. Um, I think that my youth would have been considered trauma-informed by today's language. Um, I think that um, people often don't take risks because they don't really have to, but that doesn't advance you. You have to be willing to take risks. Um, I think that having a real set of values uh, that in my case, faith and family brought to the table. You must care for others. You must do your best. You must be prepared. That's the Boy Scouts. Uh, These are important things that sustain us and help us to think about opportunity. Adversity helps us to think about opportunity. 
So put yourself in challenging situations that give you the chance to think outside the box. Walk away from the cushions you have and say, have I tried the new thing that's going to make it different, make it make a difference? Um, I, I think that we can't underestimate the importance of the village. Do I care and do I have relationships with other people that show them that they are part of this. It's not just about me, it's about us. And is that community welcoming? You know, we talk about diversity as if it's an abstract thing. In finance, they talk about the importance of diversity in portfolios. What that means is everybody has a strength and everybody has a gap. And if we can complement each other, we have so much more. And we forget those things in the day-to-day -day work we do. So I, I think that those formative experiences are very important. And a lot of us want to follow the traditional career path. Most people would say that I haven't been able to keep a job in all <laughs> these different industries. Some people would say he's been incredibly consistent. He's, he's always um, managed with his values. He's always used a collaborative or inclusive approach to, to leadership. He believes in servant leadership. He acknowledges the vet, the contributions of others. I mean, these are things that we talk about, but are we being intentional about them as we go along? And we have to challenge ourselves. We've all failed in doing those things. I've failed plenty of times, but do we make them core to what we're doing? And I think that when one does that, that even when people disagree with you, they're more confident that you considered what they thought was important and that you had good reasoning for not including it in the final outcome. And a lot of us worry about that. We, we worry that you know somebody might disagree with us instead of being confident that what we're doing is driven by the values that we live by. Uh, so often there's more than one way to do something too. So it's remembering not to be locked in on your way of doing it if the outcome and the values can still be achieved. Tom, this has been a wonderful conversation. I really appreciate you taking so much time and great to have a chance to, to, to learn from and visit with you. Well, thank you, David. You're terrific to create this opportunity for folks to share about their experiences. Um, and I hope that it's helpful to folks to listen to it and maybe thought provoking about the things they could be doing. And if someone wants to reach out, I'm available, happy to talk to them. Um, we feel very fortunate about where we are and uh, great people like you are leading the way on so many other fronts. So thank you for your work. Well, thanks very much. I have no doubt it will be helpful to many people. So I hope you have a great summer ahead. You too. Bye-bye.